0: Now then, if you were hanging about in alehouses or wandering around Oxford in 1644, you might well have heard this tune. In fact, you might well have heard it wherever you went in England, where the King lived still in the hearts of his people, because it was the most popular ballad of the period. The Broadside Ballad was printed on large sheets of cheap paper and they were hugely popular. They were mass-produced, cheap as chips, and produced to tell the story of any occasion, from battles to murders as a lot of those, a wondrous event or some romance or popular traditional song. This particular one was written by one Martin Parker, a Londoner and probably a publican, and he'd acquired a name for himself as a writer of broadside ballads and chapbooks, partly for the source of his muse, it has to be said. He always bathed his beacon ale, topping whole tubs off like some thirsty whale. But more because people came in their droves to buy the latest one, because for a penny you may have all the news in England of murders, floods, witches, fires, tempests and whatnot in one of Martin Parker's ballads. This particular ballad for when the king enjoys his own again, is a lament, wondering at the violence and the turmoil for which Martin knew there was only one solution. the The song would have a long life, played at the Restoration, and then it would become a Jacobite song in the 18th century before one day popping up again in an obscure podcast. Welcome then, everyone, to the History of England and episode 394, Lost With It All. Last time we heard about how Charles rallied the team through the Oxford Parliament, promoting the legitimacy of his cause based on the ancient constitution of England, King, Lords and Commons, striking at the legitimacy of the Westminster Parliament based erroneously as it was on King, Lord and Commons. We heard how the arrival of the Scots transformed the strategic situation, and yet how some masterly royalist generalship looked set to confound it all. Newcastle's skilled obfuscation for four months slowed the Scots down. Charles's masterly campaign in the Midlands and Cotswolds made space for some pyrotechnics from his nephew, Prince Rupert, relieving Newark, where he captured thirty-two pounds of sweet lips. At which point. I must issue an apology. Last week I made a connection between said sweet lips and Major Houlihan. I have been informed by quite a lot of people, actually, that the good Major's lips were in fact hot, not sweet. And while I would contend there is no evidence to contradict the view that they were both sweet and hot, I must apologise and thank you, my good listeners, for educating me. After New York then, Rupert swept on, liberating Lancashire and York, until it all turned to dust outside York at Marston Moor, and all seemed dead for the Royalist. Maybe now Charles would be forced to the negotiating table. This episode then, this week, is a game of two halves. For the first half, we need to finish up Marston Moor and talk about the fallout, which is considerable and will take a while, I have to say. Then we're going to hear about whether Charles's cause will end in final defeat at the hands of the Earl of Essex. So picture the scene at Marston Moor. The carnage visited on royalist forces at Marston Moor was complete. four thousand killed, fifteen hundred captured, among them Charles Lucas the cavalry captain, as against three hundred dead of the allies and no more probably, but more importantly than that. The royalist army was no more, it was completely shattered. Now Rupert does manage to reassemble about 2,000 horse and 800 infantry, neatly making the point about just how much better off you are fighting on the back of a horse than on your feet. Among the dead was Rupert's doggy boy. (coughs) Not so invulnerable after all. And maybe as that myth died, the myth of Rupert's own invincibility died with it. For the first time, the king's unbeatable general had been, well, beaten. The evening and night of the battle itself was a combination of celebration and utter grisliness. At eleven that night, the army was formed up, many singing psalms as they did so, and in the moonlight Manchester rode along the ranks and thanked his men personally for their sacrifice. Or Ronald Hutton talks about moonlight, so I am forced to remind us all that not long before it had been absolutely tipping it down, so the moon may not have had her hat on. The grisliness that night and the following morning was the normal stripping of the bodies, some of whom probably still contained living spirits, but look, that's a good shirt I can use. Relatives who were close by came out to try and find the people they loved, and that must have been particularly desperate among all that carnage. And one of them, Mary Townley, came looking for her husband who had fallen in the royalist ranks. As she watched the soldiers searching and stripping the bodies, an officer came up to her, and he asked her what she was doing in this veil of tears. When she told him, he assigned her a bodyguard to look after her and take her home afterwards once she was done. Many years later, Lady Townley would relate to everyone that that man had been Oliver Cromwell. Charles Lucas, the cavalry colonel, meanwhile, had been captured and he came round identifying soldiers and he did the full cavalier thing, sobbing, alas for King Charles. He also saw a bracelet of hair around one dead soldier's wrist and asked that it be removed and sent to an honourable lady. Hopefully it was sent to a suitable honourable lady. Newcastle, meanwhile, retreated into York, which would have been rammed with misery, screaming and dying and bleeding and all of that in the horror of defeat. And what happens next? He was done with this war, though. He saw no hope of recovery whatsoever. The military situation seemed hopeless, but also he felt personally humiliated that such a great lord had been brought so low. But what to do? Where to go? To Oxford? To carry on the fight with his friend, King Charles? Not for William Cavendish. I could not bear the laughter of the court, he wrote. And he took the last train for the coast the night the king's cause died, taking not the Father, Son and Holy Ghost, but the next best thing, his senior officers. And he took a ship from Scarborough for the continent, where there would be once more music, and he would find his inspiration and true love with Margaret Lucas, Charles Lucas's sister. King Charles wrote him a very generous letter on hearing the news, telling him not to blame himself, and that, one day, God willing, peace will return, and he will be able to reward friends as is their due. Leaven, meanwhile, Alistair Leslie, returned from Leeds, where he had run in panic, if you remember, having announced the utter defeat of all their hopes while in town at a bad moment in the battle. Now, as senior commander, it has to be said, Marston Moore was essentially Leaven's victory. It was he that had seen the royalists standing down for the day. He had seen the dropping of their guard and noticed that by a swift attack, he could gain enormous advantage and done it. Possibly the most single crucial element across the whole battle. But nonetheless, he was understandably a little embarrassed at the extravagance and completeness of his legging it. By the way, it's also said that Fairfax fled the field, but I just couldn't work out when and where he'd have done it, so I actually left it out. Anyway, the victor of the king's hopes in the north returned from Leeds, surveyed the field at Marston, and is reported to have said, I would to God I died upon this plain. So deep was his embarrassment. His chaplain, though, explained it all away by saying that God had decided to send Leven's cavalry forces away so that the victory of the rest could be even more glorious for them, which is a nice way to try and save your boss's blushes. York's position was hopeless, of course. Within two weeks, terms had been agreed and it had a new governor, Thomas Fairfax, and all the remaining royalists, soldiers and civilians were allowed to march out of the city with their arms and their colours. There was no murder, there was no mayhem. Also, Thomas earned the grateful thanks of all of us by not allowing any iconoclastic desecrations to take place in the Minster, not the least reason to love Fairfax. Rupert had lost none of his energy, although Cromwell had been set to chase him and George goring down, he moved once more like the wind, probably even angrier than he'd been on the way up. On the way to Chester, North Wales, and eventually Bristol and Oxford, Rupert met up with a couple of rather bedraggled looking noblemen who hailed him and asked for his help. They turned out to be the Marquis of Montrose and the son of the Earl of Gordon, Lord Aboyne. They were trying to revive their invasion of Scotland as commanded by their king, so they asked if Rupert could spare them some cavalry. Obviously, the answer was no, hopefully politely put. So it looked as though Montrose's plans lay in the scuppers with a hosepipe on them. But in August, Montrose would then learn that the Earl of Antrim had finally come through all of those promises and clever plans and secret tricks to provide an army to invade Scotland. And one Alastair McCollar had duly set off from the shores of Ulster for the Campbell lands of Argyll in Scotland with a couple of handy tools in his satchel, namely fire and sword. So that's an adventure then, and off Montrose set for his Date with Destiny, just the sort of date-your-Montrose type Likes to hook up with. Not for them, an ice cup of tea and a nice slice of lardy cake. In the aftermath of the battle, Oliver Cromwell sat down to get the most important and unpleasant of tasks done, and he wrote a letter to Valentine Walton, his brother in law, married to his sister Margaret. It was written in his own hand. He wrote it because Valentine's son, also called Valentine, had been killed in the battle by a cannonball. He starts off by warning Valentine there is heavy news on the way in this letter. Dear Sir, it is our duty to sympathise in all mercies that we may praise the Lord together in chastisements or trials so that we may sorrow together. He continues with as short a report of the battle as he can manage, 126 words. Truly England and the Church of God, hath had a great favour from the Lord in this great victory given unto us, such as the like was never since this war began. It had all the evidences of an absolute victory obtained by the Lord's blessing upon the godly party principally. We never charged, but we routed the enemy. The left wing, which I commanded being our own horse, saving a few Scots in the rear, beat all the prince's horse. God made them as stubble to our swords. We charged their regiment afoot with our horse, routed all that we charged. The particulars I cannot relate now, but I believe of 20,000, the prince hath not 4,000 left. Give glory, all the glory, to God. But the letter mainly focuses on Valentine, describing how the cannonball smashed his leg, and going on, Sir, you know my trials this way, but the Lord supported me with this, that the Lord took him into the happiness we all pant after and live for. There is your precious child, full of glory, to no sin nor sorrow any more. He was a gallant young man, exceeding gracious. God give you his comfort. Before his death he was so full of comfort that to Frank Russell and myself he could not express it It was so great above his pain. Truly, he was exceedingly beloved in the army of all that knew him. But few knew him, for he was a precious young man, fit for God. You have cause to bless the Lord. He is a glorious saint in heaven, wherein you ought exceedingly to rejoice. Let us drink up your sorrow, seeing these are not feigned words to comfort you, but the thing is so real and undoubted a truth. The Lord be your strength. So praise your truly faithful and loving brother, Oliver Cromwell. The letter has been much analysed, and I think you take out of it, maybe depending on your ultimate view of the man. I have put the full version and a link to a very interesting article about it on the website. Edward Hyde hated Cromwell when he wrote his history as Clarendon after the war, basically recognising him as a force of nature but describing him as a brave bad man. Another contemporary, the preacher Richard Baxter, rather nicely sums up the confusion which this letter and Cromwell's entire career have given posterity for close to 400 years. Never man was higher extolled. Never man was baselier reported of and vilified than this man. No mere man was better and worse spoken of than he, according as men's interests led their judgment. So in brief, there is much rather beautifully expressed human sympathy in the letter. The absolute centrality of faith to Cromwell, of course, comes through, and it's been noted that whereas for other military commanders like Fairfax and Manchester, military success and political resolution were the leading motivation, for Cromwell, both were subsidiary to his faith. But a load of negative things have also been emphasised. If you're being really harsh, and some are, you interpret the comfort being implied, ticking off that Valentine should not grieve his son's death since he's in God's hands. That does seem to be trying a bit hard to me, but who am I? More reasonably, it's noted that the letter glorifies God, but doesn't fail to glorify Cromwell either, which is definitely a thing about Cromwell. He does like to have blow his own trumpet, although bear in mind this is not a public report to Parliament, although it's a private letter to his brother-in-law. Nobody official is going to read it. The letter does seem to rather marginalise the Scots, but make the same point. This is not an official military report. It's a letter to his brother. It is, though, undeniably bloodthirsty. They were as stubble to our swords. Stubble, not men. Although, again, It is borrowing biblical language. Isaiah, I think, is often quoted. I don't know the Bible well enough. Anyway, an interesting letter. Have a look at the website and article if you are interested. The battle was reported, and how the battle was reported would cause upset, and it reflected the growing tensions in the alliance. So news sort of dribbled back, as news does, and was then seized on by the newsbook, who then put their own spin on it. The earliest news came to Parliament from two members of Cromwell's horse, Thomas Harrison and Charles Fleetwood, and it was therefore a Cromwell is great story. Then a Scottish soldier turned up with the letters which played up the Scottish contribution. To be honest, as far as I can see, despite all the chat, there's then quite a deal of even-handedness. One of Manchester's chaplains published a track which gave all the credit to the Eastern Association, but then heard more and issued an apology and gave due prominence to David Leslie's contribution in the Scottish horse on the left wing. Lord Sayon Seal's report certainly bigged Cromwell up, but it also bigged the Scot David Leslie up too. Another English writer marked Leaven out for chief praise. But Robert Bailey, one of the Scots commissioners, was thoroughly cheesed off nonetheless, and the reason is important. Here is something of what he wrote We were both grieved and angry that your independence there should have sent up Major Harrison to trumpet all over the city their own praises to our prejudice, making all believe that Cromwell alone with his unspeakable valorous regiments had done all the service." The word here is independent. The Westminster Assembly was not quite going to plan some of its members had openly published tracts which advocated the right of religious freedom rather than the National Presbyterian Model of the Solemn League and Covenant. So, the Covenanters and English Presbyterians were seeing a threat emerging to the adoption of the model in England, which to them was such an important matter of both salvation and, for the Scots, national security. Now they were beginning to see Cromwell as an independent, politically as well as religiously. Really, it's probably too early to make such a contention, although most extraordinary efforts have gone into making it so through that private letter to Valentine Walton. But at this point, really, Cromwell, like Vane, might have some concerns about the Covenant, but was focused mainly on just winning the war. But by the autumn of 1644, Bailey saw the danger that Cromwell was seen as a wise and active head, universally well-beloved, as religious and stout, being a known independent, The most of the soldiers who loved new ways put themselves under his command. So Bailey angrily denounced Cromwell to Parliament as an incendiary who should be impeached for kindling the coals of contention. Needless to say, Cromwell did not appreciate the accusation, and it probably made everything worse. But look, Robert Bailey was not wrong that Cromwell would indeed grow to reject the idea of what he saw as simply a different form of religious tyranny. One more Cromwell story, because I'm anxious to keep the connection between him and Honest John going, and also the start of his rift with Manchester, although it's a little thing. Lieutenant Colonel John Lilburn had been sent at the head of some dragoons to bottle up a Royalist garrison at Tickhill near Donny, Doncaster. Actually, Lilburn rather exceeded his orders, and Dudrud did rather nicely, negotiating a surrender. When Manchester turned out, though, he carpeted Lilburn for exceeding his orders, and refused to take it any further. It was probably Cromwell who then intervened with his boss to tell him, look, just be sensible, sensible here, just accept the situation and take the surrender of the castle as a win. Oliver is once more sticking up for his men but also for a known independent that his boss, Manchester, thinks a troublemaker. Right, that is finally it with Marston Moore. Leaven and his Scots head north to Newcastle and support rather general operations in Yorkshire and the borders, as the north is consolidated for Parliament. Newcastle will fall at the end of October to the Scots, which will be a relief for London since it will have its coal again. London had been denuded of its trees as people sought fuel. But you and I must now head south, for Celtic lands, to Cornwall, famously both Celtic and a cul-de-sac.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
0: There was a possible scenario in summer 1644 for the way the English Revolution will end. Stay with me on this one. In the South Midlands, Essex and Waller's army were combined and heavily outnumbered the king. They pursued Charles with grim determination and then on the 2nd of July, disaster strikes Rupert's army in the north and it is wiped out at this place called Marston Moor, let's say. Charles wriggles and squiggles but is run to ground and with nowhere to run is forced to surrender and come to terms. The roll of the dice at Marston Moor led to disaster. Charles was forced to negotiate, not his favourite mode. But, facing the horror of the Presbyterian Kirk, he huffs and he puffs, but he just cannot blow the house down. So, the Independents and the Anglicans made common cause, and religious pluralism became part of the national body politic The king's rights, though clipped, remained central to the English constitution and everyone lived happily ever after. The end. Okay, okay, stop that. Most of that possibly could be accused of being deeply iffy. But the first bit, the military defeat of the king, was entirely possible and indeed very much on the cards after Marston Moor. Whether that is in fact what happens is the subject of the second half of this episode. So, a couple of things define the months between June and September in the South and Southwest. One is that Charles plays a blinder. The other is that Essex and Waller hate each other and therefore play a blunder. Essex feels his position as General of the Parliamentary Armies is now challenged, and he behaves more in line with this feeling than in line with good sense and logic. Charles's position after his success at Crockerty Bridge is still dire. He was heavily outnumbered when Essex and Waller reluctantly combined and agreed to work together with Essex as the boss. And they had boxed Charles in around Oxford and he only had five and a half thousand men. But through march and countermarch, Charles opened a wee gap between the two of them, made a sprint for it, squeezed through the gap in their line and escaped into the Cotswolds west of Oxford, heels kicking in the air. Well, as you can imagine, there was miffiness, and Waller and Essex then pursued, until they came to the mighty Cosmopolis, the glittering glory that was stow on the world. There, they held an army council, and against Waller's furious objections, they decided to separate their armies. The reason for this was partly Henrietta Maria, partly Lyme Regis, and partly something inexplicable, not in a good way. Henrietta Maria first. You may remember she had left Oxford in April to go westwards and find somewhere safe. Bath turned out not to be safe, riddled with plague and disease, and so she carried on to Exeter for her confinement, taking over Bedford House there and having just the worst time of her pregnancy, partially losing her sight at one stage. On June the 16th she was delivered of a daughter, Henrietta. So she's there at Exeter down in the southwest in Devon, just Put that to the back of your mind. Next we turn to Lyme Regis. Of course we do. Now look, it's a thing about sieges. Very often, as we described in the last few episodes, they are local affairs, but on occasion they become the national focus. So Newark in 1644 seemed to be the fulcrum for the royalist position north and south, prompting Rupert to sweep up and relieve it. And then York held the key to the north so again became the focus of a military strategic campaign, and for good reason. And in 1644, Lyme Regis became apparently a strategic objective for Essex. Now it's a nice enough place, Lyme, don't get me wrong, but strategic objective, it ain't. But because it was being besieged by Prince Morris, because it was a Puritan town, because it was being furiously and bravely defended by the good citizens, because the new sheets had got hold of it, The entire parliamentarian campaign, at this point of critical opportunity, when the war could have been won, gets turned around and inside out. Now, there is no doubt that the defence of Lyme Regis had indeed become something of a symbol to the cause. Morris invested the south coast port in April, and I think it's fair to say that the resistance of the seaport, led by the future Admiral Robert Blake, and famously the Women of Lyme, really got his goat. The vile little fishing village of Lyme. he called it, and clearly taking it was going to be a doddle. Breakfast work, we would not dine until we've taken it. However, not only was it defended by a substantial force of 1,100 soldiers, but the news sheets quickly got hold of the story of the women who took part with religious fervour in its defence. There was a much-parodied heroic poem, The Jonah Rydos, telling the story of how one maid lost her hand while carrying a pail to put out a conflagration caused by the evil besiegers. And then another lost both of her arms. Both of her arms. That sort of thing. Heroism at limb loss level. So instead, Morris and his army, which themselves frankly had better things to do with their time, were tied down throughout May 1644 outside the little town of Lim public pressure through the news sheets grew on the committee of both kingdoms to do something about this and they were partly to blame for giving in just a little bit. So they sent a note to Essex saying look why don't you cut off a tiny wee corner of your army and send it under some office junior down to Lim to relieve it. Morris is in trouble anyway since the defenders down there have turned out to be nowhere near as armless as he thought. So shouldn't take much. Well, at the army council at the mighty Stow on the World, Essex decided that the little seaport and future holiday town of Lyme Regis was critical to the success of the cause, and he took his whole army down there. The committee of both kingdoms were livid when they heard, hopping around like Rumpelstiltskin with his foot in the floor, laying an enormous clutch of eggs. Waller's jaw was on his toe caps for pretty much the rest of the year, but Essex was out of there. Possibly, there were two other considerations. One, Essex hated Waller and wanted his life back. Two, he could chase the Queen, maybe, and capturing her would be a fine negotiating chip. And three, well, time is a nice place and everyone wanted it saved, and who doesn't want to be a hero? The plan forged at Stowe was that Waller would continue to chase down the king. But as it happens, Waller's army was deserting in droves and before long it was all he could do to lock himself up in Abingdon and desperately no one noticed him. Essex, before he knew it, would be on his own and the king was free as the air to make trouble with his army which was getting more recruits every day. Still, it all went swimmingly to begin with. Morris was indeed angrily forced to raise the siege and he stomped off, muttering he never wanted the vile little fishing village anyway. Somped off to join the king, whose army was now beginning to look pretty nifty. Joining the king was probably the right thing for him to do anyway, Essex or no Essex. The women of Lim streamed out like angry bees from the seaport, and within a matter of days, 400 of them had erased all sight of the royalist siege fortifications. The woman who had lost a hand was reported as declaring, Truly I am glad, with all my heart, that I had a hand to lose for Jesus Christ, for whose cause I am as willing and ready to lose, not only my other hand, but my life also. Okay, it is good to know there are lovers of drama on both sides. Essex now had the bit between his teeth. Like a bird on the wing, he was determined to chase the Queen down in the West Country. So on the 25th of June, the committee of both kingdoms bowed to the inevitable and accepted that that was where his army was going as Essex set off for Devon. To give them their due, the committee of both kingdoms recognised the danger in the Midlands where the king was looking very threatening now and they urged Fairfax, Leven and Manchester to get down there and finish the job off. But Fairfax was busy with York, Leven and Manchester were busy basking. Manchester had retired to Lincoln and he was going nowhere fast. We have now firmly entered Manchester's torpid phase. He was a gentle sort of bloke and had been horrified at the slaughter. He wanted no more of that. He wanted to win in moderation rather than with a sword at his king's throat, if only the king had been capable of moderation. The committee of both kingdoms were back in Rumpelstiltskin mode, hopping around, urging him to do something. Meanwhile, down, down went Essex with Philip Skippen, Skippen at his side, southwest, ever southwest, further southwest into Devon, where Robert Blake captured Taunton in Somerset on the eighth of July. While he was going, at which point Charles had probably received the bad news from Marston Moor, but now thought he saw an opportunity too. Famously, Devon and Cornwall turned into a cul-de-sac. Well, Essex wasn't worried about that. He had at his side a manically enthusiastic and positive chap called Lord Roberts, who told him that the Devonians and Cornish were very godly, and would be mad keen for him. Nothing to fear, my lud, and Essex was outside Exeter. Henrietta Maria had written in her distress for assurances, and received only the news that she would be safely transferred to the safety of the great city of London. This was not the reassurance Henrietta Maria had been looking for. The Queen was still weak and ill, but she refused to be delivered into the hands of her enemies, there to be used to bring her husband's cause to perdition. So she left her tiny baby with one Lady Dalkeith and fled, with members of her household such as Margaret Lucas, the future Countess of Newcastle, scattering to make their way secretly out of the city, avoiding the parliamentary forces. Henrietta Maria herself hid under a heap of litter, she said, in a hut, for three days without food or water, but she escaped, and made it to Falmouth, which is a long journey, deep into Cornwall, where others who had evaded capture made it to and met up. She hired a bark to take her to France, but it was a close run thing, fired on by Warwick's ships, so that Henrietta Maria ordered her captain to scuttle the ship rather than be taken, and then ran a storm, but she made it to France, to Brittany, and to the court of Louis Thirteenth, She was welcomed there with open arms and honour, as you'd expect, and she set up a court at the Louvre, where she would work tirelessly for the cause once more. By the 20th of July, Charles had probably decided to rescue his queen, and his increasingly strong army was in pursuit into the closed bag that is Devon and Cornwall. Have I made the point sufficiently that it's a no-through road down there? Not realising by then, then, Charles, that his queen had escaped, he pursued her still. And what of Essex, then? Well, obviously this would be a good time not to walk into a trap. But he'd been having a good time. The gentry of Dorset and Devon had indeed welcomed him, and Lord Roberts was still whittering on about the Corns. And there was a county to capture and glory to be won. To be honest, no one can work out what Essex was on by this stage, why he was going into Cornwall. He had begun to realize that he was outnumbered, it's got to be said, and appealed for reinforcements. Waller managed to send 2,000 horse, but they were intercepted and routed at Bridgewater, so they didn't get to him. Probably Essex thought that Warwick's navy was his ace in the hole, that that navy could either deliver supplies or even pick the army up. So Essex kept on, southwest, ever southwest. It was raining. The ways were so extreme, foul with excessive rain, and the harness for draught horses so rotten that, marching off, we lost three demi-culverins and a brass piece. The night was so foul and the soldiers so tired, they were hardly to be kept to their colours. Nor, it turns out, were the locals friendly. Cornwall was one of those areas, very firm for the king throughout, proud of their local language and traditions, and as the parliamentary army struggled past Plymouth into Cornwall and to Bodmin by the end of July, Philip Skippen's men were suffering from constant attacks, raids, and skirmishes by the increasingly powerful royal army as well. George Goring had now arrived from the north with a new cavalry force, and Charles's army was now significant, 19,000 strong to Essex's 10,000. This isn't looking like such a fun party anymore, and Essex was beginning to realise he might need to reach out for his hole and fish out that ace. Meanwhile, his army was experiencing a class of cultures. The Cornish were more than unhelpful. Despairingly, Essex wrote, "'Intelligence we have none, the country folk being violent against us. If any of the scouts and soldiers fall into their hands, they are more bloody than the enemy.' His army weren't enjoying their Cornish holiday either." We are among a people as far from humanity as they are from sanctities, for they will neither serve God nor man, but after the old fashion of their grandfathers. It's a fair note of caution. You have got to be careful of those Cornish grandfathers. They're a rum lot. As August wore on, the situation grew more and more desperate for Essex and his men as they holed up around Foy, desperately hoping Warwick would save them. Warwick could not save them. The winds were a constant problem, I know what he means, and basically he had nowhere near the capacity to load up 10,000 soldiers or anything like it, even if the Royalists could be held up for long enough while they tried to do it. Charles launched attack after attack around the village of Lostwithiel from 21st of August, and strong point by strong point fell, pushing Essex into an area two miles by five around the town. Charles was energized. He would save this war with his own bare hands, and he was relentless. That night the king lay under the hedge with his servants in one field. I saw eight or nine of the enemies dead under the hedges that day, wrote Richard Simmons outside Lostwithiel. In Parliament's camp it was decided they must try a breakout. In the dead of night, Essex's cavalry did just that. Not by blasting their way through the lines and scoring a great victory, no, no. By creeping very quietly through friendly fog, through the encircling lines and away. On the morning of the 1st of September then, Philip Skippen roused himself as normal and went to find his commander for that all-important council of war about how they got themselves out of this mess. He found the cupboard of leadership bare. Essex, at that very moment, was on a fishing boat, making his way to Warwick's navy and personal safety. I thought fit to look to myself, it being a greater terror to me to be a slave of their contempt than a thousand deaths. I would rather fall into the hands of God than men, for if the enemy should take me, they would use me reproachfully. I imagine they would, but seriously, is that sufficient justification? Lord knows what Skipper thought when he realised that he'd been left higher and drier than a smoking kipper. More than anyone had a right to be left by his boss. The going had got tough and Essex had gone fishing. The royalist Newsheets knew exactly what they thought. We desire to know the reason why the rebels voted to live and die with the Earl of Essex, since the Earl of Essex had declared he will not live and die with them. I imagine the starving, wet, beaten men staring annihilation in the face that lost with all had similar, if not slightly ruder, thoughts. To be fair, Essex knew what he'd done and that he must face the music. He wrote to his political ally, Philip Stapleton, It is the greatest blow that ever befell our party. I desire nothing more. To come to the trial, such losses as these must not be smothered up. But if you are ever in that sort of jam, the sort of thing that would have baffled Abraham, you could do worse than have your baby held by a man of the calibre of Philip Skippen. He called his officers together and they talked options. It appears Skippen had plans for another breakout to make like the cavalry, but his officers quickly talked him out of that as impractical without four legs. So, Skippen gathered his army and he made a speech for the galleries, royalist as well as his own men, just as he'd done on the common at Turnham Green. And apparently his men threw up their hats and gave a great shout, resolving unanimously to fight it out to the last man. I think we might take this with a pinch of salt. I would have thought, you must be blooming joking, mate. It might have been closer to the truth. But if it did happen, it would have been for effect, for a good bargaining position, because Philip duly sued the king for terms. And maybe it did happen because Charles gained good terms, terms that were too good probably, and agreed to let the army march out after laying down all its weapons and suffering the shame of surrendering their colours. Maybe the royalists were themselves short of supplies, maybe they feared the death and destruction of a final fight against an enemy apparently so resolute to throw their hats in the air and sell their lives dearly. So, the men were not imprisoned, nor made to give a bond against signing up again for Parliament. Charles would regret that, a bit. In fact, most of the bedraggled and deserted soldiers would have sold their lives for tuppence me at that point. They did have to run the gauntlet, passing through the Royalist lines, and Richard Simmons watched them go. So dirty and dejected, as was rare to see, "'none of them except some few of the officers "'that did look any of us in the face. "'Our foot would flout at them, "'and this was a happy day for His Majesty. "'Tis conceived very few will get safe to London "'for the country people, "'when they have in all the march "'so much plundered and robbed "'that they will have their pennyworth out of them. "'It was a miserable march for them "'with no food, little water, "'and no one willing to offer help on the way.' "'One of the soldiers later remembered. "'The next day some of our soldiers mistook their way "'and went a mile from the army, "'many of which were most miserably wounded. "'Some were killed within a little of Tiverton. "'Many that escaped came to us all blood and wounded. "'Skippen, though, was with them all the way. "'He might not have been, actually. It had had options, "'because after the terms were agreed, "'Charles drew him to one side "'and suggested he maybe ought to fight "'for the side that had truth, light and justice on their side.' not just the side that provided the best biscuits. Skippen was firm and replied that he was fully resolved of those principles to which he stood to be for God and his glory, in which by God's assistance he would live and die. Bulstrode Whitelock noted in his diary that Skippen had done every bit as well as could have been expected and more, and that he had carried his loss with very good grace. And Skippen's miserable men agreed, as he went with them, Never was any man so patient, so humble, and so truly wise and valiant in all his actions. Still, when all's said and done, the nine stitches have been stitched, the shouting is shouted, and the fat lady is blasting away, this was still a copper-bottomed, 24-carat disaster. As far as Parliament were concerned, Essex had snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, and to be fair to him, Charles had snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Just as the North was now a largely parliamentarian country, with the exception of the Royalist port and Stronghold of Chester, the West was now a parliament-free zone, with the exception, it must be said, of that new parliamentarian stronghold of Taunton in Somerset. And now once more, Charles stood with an impressive trained army, combining the forces of his own, of Morris and of George Goring, and no one stood on his way to London again. In London, The committee of both kingdoms were lighting fires or trying to light them under the bum of their victorious Eastern Association commander, Manchester. Get your yellow belly down here. Stop enjoying the delights of Lincoln. Considerable, there they are. Essex was temporarily forgiven and ordered to gather the shards of his dignity and his army. Stop squabbling with Waller for one minute All get together and do what they already should have done and crush a king who appeared to have been beaten down and out, and now suddenly look distressingly healthy. Well, we'll see how that goes next time. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Do get in touch, tell me how things are for you, write a review if you're feeling generous, come along to the website at thehistoryofengland.co.uk and make a comment, or indeed to the Facebook group. Whatever you decide to do, good luck, and have a great week.